Freedom for me is the ability to walk through the world and be able to inhale and exhale mm. and feel your surroundings and admire and appreciate those surroundings, the ability to live without having to think that taking that breath is going to hinder you, without the ability to feel that taking that breath is going to stop you from moving forward, that you're not going to be able to sigh because you are relaxed and relieved and you feel a part of, but you sigh because you have to worry about getting through the life. I'm Anika Noni Rose, and this is Being Seen, an in-depth exploration of culture's role in resolving the tensions between how we are seen and how we see ourselves. Focused on Black women, Being Seen is a space to explore culture with leading artists, writers, activists, and entertainers. If we create nuanced and accurate cultural portrayals of identity and experience, we have an opportunity to reduce stigma and change perception, impacting everything from HIV to institutional inequity. Freedom has meant so many things to us. A cultural artifact, an object, a place to arrive, a mirage that shimmers just out of reach. Small freedoms, big freedoms, a promise that has yet to be fulfilled. Something for the few, but not for the many. Where are we ever free? Maybe freedom isn't a destination, but a practice. Daily acts that we commit together as community, as individuals in shared space, finding ways to give each other and ourselves grace, to accept and to welcome, to acknowledge, to protect, to cherish, to expand. And if it's a practice, a commitment of continual action, something that Black women have long known and inhabited, then we have to remember the truth in the words of the Cumby River Collective. If Black women were free, it would mean that everyone else would have to be free too. There are spaces where we find freedom, like water. Kalita Rawls is an artist known for placing bodies, black bodies, in water. Her paintings are so specific, they almost feel like photographs. The people in them have a weight to them. You can feel the moisture on their skin. They sink, they float. In water, they feel free. You have said before that you believe in water memory and turning that a bit to the memory of um, certain waters in 1863, Harriet Tubman led 300 Union soldiers up the river from Beaufort, South Carolina to conduct a raid that freed over 750 enslaved people. Over 100 years later, a group of black feminists in Boston chose the name of that river and the memory of that action, calling themselves the Combahee River Collective. In their work, they sought to elucidate the experience of trying to find freedom as black women in a system that was both racist and sexist. In what ways do you think that work is central to the freedom freedom work of all Americans? Mm. 
deep, good question there. Let me think. Well, I do believe that, um, yeah, all of that is in the water. <laughs> I just, you know, when I was reading about water memory, I just thought it was very interesting uh, thinking about the uh, water memory theory that basically what's at the top of a river water's trickling down a river you get the water at the top you look at the water at the bottom and study it at the bottom of a river it'll have different sentiments in it you know mm -hmm. of, of, of what has you know what has passed through it and thinking about that and the amount of bodies that may be in the ocean from our middle passage experience mm -hmm. and the cycling of water on earth you know it doesn't really go anywhere. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just recycled around. And um, I think that's fascinating. And our history and experience, where does that all go? I mean, that fact that you were saying is just so beautiful. I cannot believe that you could save 750 people one time. She was amazing. Right. No cell phone. Amazing. No cell no, phone. No arch supports. Just going to do it. Because I decided to do it and it needs to be done. Oh my, uh, what an amazing person. In many mythologies, water is a symbol for the unconscious, the private, deepest parts of the mind, our memories, our traumas, the things that lie beneath which can often wrap themselves around us, pulling us. But it's also where we dream, where we create. To say Jacqueline Woodson is a writer feels incomplete. She's certainly that, but also much more. She's also an imagination architect, creating spaces for us to see the structure of people, of our lives, and particularly of girlhood, with startling and essential clarity. In another Brooklyn, you also say, I know not that what is tragic isn't the moment. It is the memory. One of the schools of thought regarding trauma is that it in some ways destroys our capacity to imagine anything different, mm -hmm. leaving us trapped and unable to imagine alternate outcomes. However, immersing ourselves in stories through acting, writing, reading, telling can start to change our ability to inhabit new possibilities. What is your perspective on that? Has that been true for you at all or is something that you have seen in your readers? Yeah, I do think going back to the sense of mirrors, right? One thing about trauma is people think they're the only ones who have it, right? That their trauma is absolutely their own and very um, individual and no one else understands it or no one else has had that same experience. And I think one thing that books can do is show them that it's out, you're, you're not alone in this. And, and I think for me, in th terms of thinking about trauma and, um, and what one does with it, writing is cathartic. Mm -hmm. And I think once cathartic writing happens, the cathartic reading happens, and that catharsis comes from people recognizing that there is a world out there that's meeting them where they are. And um, so, so I'm a big believer in talking about stuff. I, I, I don't think you can be African-American in this country and not have trauma just by 
the way by which this country was built. And, um, and I do think that so much of us making a way out of no way, uh, so much of us coming from a people that weren't allowed to read and write and becoming nerds and writers and all of this is, um, is because we've, we have had these tools, oftentimes through storytelling, right? If it wasn't the storytelling inside of books, it was the storytelling of our grandparents and our parents and our uncles and our cousins that made us, you know, find laughter inside that trauma, that made us find, you know, strength inside the, the mere fact of our own survival. And I think this, for me, we, looking at something like the warmth of other suns, I'm reminded again and again that, yeah, we've come a long way and look how fabulous we are now. And, you know, so we must have been so fabulous then. So, yeah, it was hard. It was traumatic. I think about the four girls in um, in another Brooklyn and they're just trying to get through girlhood. <laughs> mm-hmm. Freedom for our children, however we may define it. The spaces that are created out of necessity where we can shelter family, cheer for our kids, help them walk free. Dominique Jackson, model, actress, and more. So thanks in large part to Pose, many people know, or think they know, know a little bit, about the uh, ballroom scene. Uh, My introduction to the ballroom scene was Paris is Burning, which is... uh, the end all and be all to a documentary. Um, but some things are, fu- are impossible to understand fully without feeling them yourself. So what does it feel like to you literally in your body when you are at a ball and walking your categories? What is that that moves through you? What do you inhabit in that space? And does it change depending on the category and the outfit? Oh, yes, it does. Yes, it does. Ballroom taught me that you can still experience your dreams. Mm. You may not be the movie star. You may not be the runway model. But right here, right now, you're going to be that person. And we're going to celebrate you for it if you bring it right. Mm-hmm. Bring it correct. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you think, because And it prepared me so much for life. Because I never thought that... M- Anything that I consider talent would be would be considered or received anywhere outside of ballroom. Mm. And I saw a movement of people pushing to get us outside of ballroom because some of them had the ability to exist in the what was the normal society and world and ballroom was an escape. And when I would stand on that ballroom floor, the celebration that would come from my people would just, even those that weren't in my house, and to see people standing there screaming for you and yelling. Like, you know, when I watch like some of the videos like on TikTok now and I see parents going in for their, their kids, I'm like, yeah, that's how it's supposed to be, but you haven't seen it until you get to a ball. <laughs> you know, because it is like, it's like you get this, this feeling, it's almost like you're floating on air. 
and they encourage you to bring out the best. So you may have started at the runway a bit nervous, but by the time you get to the middle of that runway and you have all that, the excitement, the chair, the validation, the yes, the the everything, the yes with an A and a bunch of S's, you know, (laughs) it's like you feel like you're floating on air. Children become girls. Childhood becomes girlhood. A space we don't often hold, too quickly passed by, and particularly for Black girls. The freedoms we take from them too young. The ideas, assumptions, and expectations we place on them, on their innocence, on their bodies. We tried to hold on. We played double dutch and jacks. We chased the ice cream truck down the block, waving our change-filled fists. We frog-jumped over tree stumps, pulled each other into gushing fire hydrants, learned to dance the loose booty to Sly and the Family Stone, hustled to Van McCoy. We bought t-shirts with our names and zodiac signs in iron-on letters. But still, as we slipped deeper into 12, our breasts and butts grew, our legs got long, Something about the curve of our lips and the sway of our heads suggested more to strangers than we understood. In another Brooklyn, you make girlhood both magical in the experience and the way that the girls are with each other, while at the same time it is fraught and surrounded by the world, which is so often marked by danger. We often talk of childhood, but less so of girlhood. How do you think that experience is currently understood And maybe equally as importantly, what do you think it should be? Oh my goodness, that's such a great question. (sighs) I think that it's fraught. I I think that um, when we talk about childhood, we're not always talking about girlhood. We're definitely not always talking about Black girlhood. And I think that we live in a society that sexualizes girls and, you know, from everything from social media to, you know, the ad campaigns to, and, and, you know, both print and on television. So that the mirrors that uh, young women see are, are showing them, they think, the expectation of who they're supposed to be. And, I think about myself as a parent, there's nothing you can do to get away from that. You know, it's hard to send your daughter out into the world and not have her come back with ideas of who she's supposed to be. And um, I think that it, it, it's, a, it's a deep problem in our society and one that rarely lets girls have childhoods. So... How do we get away from it? We we see children as children. Um, you know, I think it has a lot to do with, you know, people being predators, um, whether they are acting on it or not. Um, I think it has a lot to do with this thought that because a girl's coming into her body is so visible, right? Mm-hmm. So physically visible that she's meant to be looked at. And a disturbing way as mm-hmm. someone who had, had who was once a girl and 
and there's now a woman who's a mother of a girl. Um, and I, the, the healing around it, I think it begins with talking about it. I think it begins with, I think there's been so much pushback around trying to let young people be young people. I was listening to Gloria Steinem talk over the weekend and thinking about the feminist movement. Um, but it's still, I don't even know where to begin with trying to have the conversations. I, I remember, I don't know if I said this bef- in public before, but my, I remember when my daughter was nine years old and we were coming out of Trader Joe's on Atlantic Avenue and she was on her scooter and my son was on his scooter bike and they were about six feet ahead of me. And these guys were standing around this car and one guy said, hey, hey girl, I like you on that scooter. And, and I dropped my bags and just started screaming screaming on Atlantic Avenue. I'm like, she's nine effing years old. And he's like, oh, I was just complimenting her to her. I'm like, it's against the law for you to say anything to her. She, and he was obviously not just, you know, he was, he said, I like you on that scooter. Um, and it was that moment I was like, wow, how am I going to protect this child who looks older than she do- is, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. you know, from this world where she's getting these messages already. So, I don't know. And I know I'm not alone as a mother in seeing this. And I don't know. I mean, the thing that I feel like I can do as an author is write books like the Brooklyn that empower girls. I think in writing another Brooklyn, every time I think about writing a girl protagonist, for me, my work is how do I show her her power? You know, how, how, how do I how do I pay homage to who they are, where they are? And then these girls become women and still are not free from stereotypes, from stigma, from assumption, the freedom to have agency for ourselves. So the title of your solo exhibition, A Dream for My Lilith, of her you have said, quote, she became known as the spirit of darkness because she wouldn't lie beneath Adam. She wanted to be seen as equal and therefore she left Eden and was punished. Equality is something we should all strive for, and I can't imagine why we are punished for it, even though it happens all the time. So that stuck with me and made me think of my experience as a Black female, unquote. What is it about Lilith, a myth that I, uh, that I find very interesting, that reminded you of your experience as a Black female? Well, Black women are often, especially in the media, portrayed in like three forms of stereotypes like the mammy this the what is it the um jezebel jezebel or sapphire right mm-hmm. and the way when when i learned about the lilith narrative or uh, myth you could say it was interesting because it was made me think of the sapphire you know they were mm-hmm. saying that she was difficult and you know she want you know she didn't she was asking for equality and then she left because you know I guess Eden was not heaven or a heavenly place for her. She went to the sea. And then supposedly, according to this alternate version of the creation story, um, God sent the angels to her at the sea and told her to go back. And um, they said, if you don't, you'll be punished. You'll be seen as your, your legacy will basically be destroyed. And she decided, then I'll just stay in the sea. You know, and thinking of that and 
that after that, you always see the Lilith characters, even on the show Cheers. Lilith was very difficult and angry Mm -hmm. and always confrontational and anyone liked her. And then you see these Lilith narratives, but that is very much seen in a lot of our narratives, the Mm -hmm. difficult one, the hard one. But what, what, why is she difficult? Because she's standing up for herself because Mm -hmm. she wants to be like in, let's say that show Cheers, that people a lot of time know that Lilith character. She wanted to be equal. She had the shoulder pads and she was always going back and forth and questioning her man, but she wasn't liked. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like black women are often seen that way, you know, in relationships, we're questioning what they're doing, we're combative with our men. And I thought of that and said, oh, so Lilith was a black woman, right? Okay, I got it. <laughs> and so um, I, I just I just wanted to pull it closer to us because it's really sad that wanting, um, having agency for yourself or wanting equality or being seen as the same is um, damaging to our reputation. Finding the freedom to protect ourselves, to only allow in what we want, and to accept the things that we have fought for and won, knowing what we have and what we deserve. So you are very often explicit in your interviews about the psychological effects of the stigma and discrimination that you suffered over the years, as well as the complete 180 in the way that the world sees you, that fame has uh, brought you. Those sorts of experiences can make people feel boxed in, can make them feel shackled, even when we are we have moved on from them. Where do you feel the most free and unencumbered by your past the pres- and the pressures of society and public perceptions? Where do you feel most open in yourself? So, um, okay, I'm going to just have to tell you a story. <laughs> so I hope you can bear with me on this one. When Pose wrapped, I, I, I don't think I ever wanted to admit that I was under so much pressure, that it was a lot for me, that it was overwhelming, that reliving my traumas was because others would say, oh my gosh, it must be so therapeutic to relive everything that, you know, you went through in the past. And in my head, I would say to myself, I want you to repeat that really slowly and think about it. You're telling me that it must be therapeutic for me to relive everything that I have been through in the past because it makes you feel comfortable. I am the one that has to go home and still have these nightmares, you know? And so for me, it was getting to take my time to process it because it was you're famous. Everyone is impersonating you and, and this is happening and that's happening. We need you here and we need you there. And I was running in every direction because I felt, guess what? It's going to end. It's going to stop. I didn't see myself as Mr. Murphy saw me, as Mr. Murphy said, you have talent. You're good. Brad Simpson, one of the producers said, Dominique, stay grounded. Don't float above it. Don't get lost in it. Don't get dizzy. Stay grounded. And it, I had to fight for that because I couldn't turn my back on my community and go, oh my gosh, this is where I am now. Mm-hmm. I could not say, oh, you know, this is so fantastic. It's so fabulous. I had to face everything. 
I had to go through it. I had to understand what fame really meant. Mm -hmm. That fame did not mean that I would have a million dollars in the bank. Right? Fame fame did not mean and celebrity did not mean that I would not that I would still not struggle. Celebrity did not mean that I would still not have bad days. And so in April, I cracked. I cracked, I snapped, I couldn't I didn't know which direction to take. And thanks to my fiance and the ones that were close to me and my one of my sisters, Tabitha, you know, they came to my aid. And that's when they realized, they were like, oh my gosh, this is not about the fame and the money. You're still human underneath and through all of that. And so, of course, we went to Hawaii and uh, we had to just take that, like my therapist, my therapist said to me, and I got really right back into therapy, you know, and my therapist helped to pull me through this also. And so it was, it was just like this whole overwhelming, like, like, like circle of everything coming at me. And so I had to stand strong now in the middle. And I took some time and I now stand firm in my bubble. And I allow what I want to come in mm-hmm. and I am able to erase. So sometimes I'll stand in a space and things are happening and they're asking questions and their stuff. And I'll just do this. And that's because I'm swiping those traumatic experiences past. Right. And I've also learned in the past couple months through therapy, through understanding that I have to be able to accept what I fought for. Right. Because it wasn't handed to me. I fought for this. And now the survivor's guilt, the. Uh, um, uh, 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 Take your time. I, I can't. The imposter syndrome. Okay. Right. I had to pull myself out of that and realize, like, yes, this is what I fought for. This is what my ancestors wanted. This is what a lot of my sisters and brothers have been striving for. And I worked hard for it and I'm blessed and I have to accept it and now know how to be able to return the favor and provide my shoulders for my brothers and sisters to be able to stand on so that they don't have to go through the hardships that I have been through. Pulling each other through. Freedom from stigma. Freedom from an unwanted silence. One of the main goals of this show is to reduce HIV stigma. And I'd like to talk a little bit about HIV in the context of Black trans women. Many people, unfortunately, think that HIV primarily affects gay and queer men. However, Black women account for a huge percentage of new diagnoses. And many of these women are trans women. Why do you think that this is still unknown? And why do you think that this disparity still exists? Well, it's it's really weird because um, just by you saying that in 2021, you know, people still think that it only affects gay men. I mean, like, where have you been? <laughs> like, what rock are you living under? I, I thought we got past that in like the the in the nineties when so many women were coming forward with this, this disease and 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 passing away. You know, and we have to continue this conversation because I think a lot of times. Well, I I don't know about everyone's circle, but in some of the circles that are predominantly black, right? There is still this stigma of it won't affect us. Mm. It doesn't come here, 
right? You can pray all you want to. HIV and AIDS is 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 going to be at your door if you are doing other things, if you're doing certain things, mm-hmm. right? We have to stop being afraid of teaching people about stuff because we think that it's going to give them permission to do it. We're talking about trying to save lives here. And so we return to water, the unconscious, the feminine, the divine, that which belongs to all of us. How we restrict each other from places because of fear, because of stigma, because of a limitation of ourselves. You know, and and with the connection that Black Americans have to the water, whether it's waters of the Middle Passage, the spiritual practices of the Gullah Geechee people to the segregation of shared swimming places to white folks pouring bleach in water so that we couldn't swim in the pool. It only makes sense that these portraits would be layered and and of many depths. Can you talk a little bit about how the history moves through your paintings and lives in different spaces? Oh, uh, yeah. I think that all those historical connotations that you've you've mentioned are definitely underneath it for me. And it does have that meaning for Black bodies in water. Uh, I thought a lot of the stories my father would tell me, you know, my family um, was from the um, Maryland Eastern Shore. And my father would mention, like, when he was younger, they could only go to the beach on Thursdays. It was a place of segregation. And because of that, some of my uncles would never go to the beach out of, like, a protest. They wouldn't go mm. to the water. And I think of, like, the access issues of uh, pools are usually in more middle-class or upper-class neighborhoods. And we haven't had a lot of access to them, but except for public pools, which are done, you know, with certain funding. And... I want people to see themselves in water, comfortable with agency, and also believe they belong there. And thinking of our history with water, and like I said, even my uncle, after years when he was probably like in his late 70s, we'd go visit him with my children during the summers, and I was like, you've got to come to the beach with us. Like, you can't allow the laws that didn't, from segregation Mm-hmm. to not allow you to experience something so beautiful. Like you're mm-hmm. cutting off your nose to spite your face. Mm-hmm. You know, you're mad at that. So you're not going to enjoy the ocean that's like a couple miles from your house. You know, you're never going there because they didn't allow you to. It's your space. It's yours. You know, it belongs to you too. And the mm-hmm. pools belong to us and the water belongs to us. It all belongs to us too. And um, I did think of that and that's why it does have a different meaning with, with us being in the water, for sure. So where can we search for freedom? Attempt to define it and to inhabit it. One place is in our stories. What freedom do you think stories contain? And what can that freedom do for us individually, but also collectively? 
Oh, man. That's such a great question. I love the idea of reading as, you know, chain breaking. And I think I always think about Dr. Rudine Sims Bishop, who talks about the importance of young people having both mirrors and windows in their literature. Mirrors so they see reflections of themselves, like I did with Stevie, and also windows so they see the experience of others, or see into other worlds. And mm. Um, by doing so, gain empathy and understanding of the quote-unquote other. Um, And so I think about kids living in homogenous worlds where they don't get to know someone of another economic class or race or, you know, whatever the quote-unquote other is to them and how reading gives them that freedom to experience a bigger world and a greater good. Um, I think of reading as a way to escape the the everyday, right? When times, I, this pandemic, you know, the idea of being able to go inside a book and be anywhere <laughs> but here is so freeing. And and just the, the um, you know, even I think a lot of writers, a lot of good writers aren't didactic. They're subversive. Right. Mm, and and mm. there is this way in which through the literature, you don't necessarily just learn, you change. And mm. and that's about, again, being open to the conversation you're having with the characters and by extension with the author. So when I look at someone's book, like when I look at um, Jason Reynolds book, um, Ghost, which is about a young person who becomes a track star and all the things that have happened in his life that get him to that point. And also the community he builds as a runner and the friends he meets because of the sport and how the sport and the friendships heal him. Um, And you're not saying to a kid, you know, you get good friends and they'll heal you, but you're showing them like, you know, it's it's a good thing to have good friends and, and to do the things you love to do and to not be afraid. And here's what that experience looks like. We find our freedoms. We find ourselves in our stories and also in the roles we play. Your career has blossomed in recent years. And as part of that, you've had the opportunity to inhabit different characters, different roles, both on screen and on the runway. Now, this ability to slip into another identity can sometimes free us from the constraints of our own experience and give us really important insights. What are the biggest things you have learned from the characters you have played, or one character in particular? I've loved all of my characters, from Miss World and American Gods to Electra on Pose. Playing a strong, empowering, you know, fulfilled woman is, is, is not something that you usually see all the time. It's something that we, we fight for those roles, you know? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. sometimes we have to do so and we don't realize we're doing that subconsciously. For me, every single character I have played has actually been a part of who I am. And these characters help to pull that out of me. 
Electra helped me to realize that it's okay to snap sometimes. It's okay to go after yours. Just don't rob people, especially the ones that are supposed to love you, <laughs> you know. Um, but, you know, Electra told me that it's okay to stand up for yourself. It's okay to feel your power in the midst of crisis, in the midst of having that, that body in her trunk. She still went on with life. She, 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 she went through it, but she still moved on with life. Miss World just let me know that women can be powerful. I, I see so many times where we get to power, but we're fighting for it. For Miss World, that character, the power was already there. You know, it was not something that had to be, you know, assumed or challenged or judged. It was respected. And that's the kind of power that I think that all of my sisters, my trans sisters, my black sisters, all of my sisters, my, my sisters of color, every woman needs to be able to experience that, needs to be able to feel standing from your power instead of having to always and constantly fight for it. And then the runways just let me know, girl, at 46, you still got it. When I think of myself as a little girl, I can immediately see myself riding my bike with my jacket flapping behind me, free as the wind. Then I understood freedom to be physical. But as I got older, that changed. And now I think so much of freedom is also mental and spiritual. Freedom is a practice. Freedom is a possibility. The ability to make oneself, one's future, one's life free from assumption, from stigma, from the expectations of others. Black women... Black girls should be free. That year, every song was telling some part of our story. We crowded around the small radio in Sylvia's room and listened. When Gigi's mother wasn't home, we went there after school, waited while Gigi used the key that hung from her neck to unlock the door. There was no couch in the one-room kitchenette, so we sat on the floor around her close-and-play record player, the volume turned down low. We leaned in to listen as Al Green begged us to lay our heads upon his pillow, and Tavares asked us to please remember what they told us to forget. And Minnie Ripperton and Sylvia hit notes so high and so long, it felt like the world was ending. The world was ending. We had been girls wobbling around the apartment in Gigi's mother's white go-go boots. And then, and then, and then, little pieces of Brooklyn began to fall away, revealing us. We envied each other's hair, eyes, butts, noses. We traded clothes and shared sandwiches. Some days we laughed until soda sprayed from our noses and hiccups erupted in our chest. When boys called our names, we said, don't even say my name. Don't even put it in your mouth. When they said, you ugly anyway, we knew they were lying. When they hollered, conceited, we said, no, convinced. We watched them dip walk away, too young to know how to respond. The four of us together weren't something they understood. They understood girls alone, folding their arms across their breast, praying for invisibility. The freedom of girlhood, of memory, of water, 
The freedom of summer, of sisterhood, of wasted time. The freedom to write our story. The freedom to invent ourselves. The freedom to talk back. The freedom of visibility. The freedom of being seen. Being Seen is produced by Harley and & Company and created in partnership with Vive Healthcare.